own stepping away today from the epistle of James just for this week and I'm going to be speaking you uh, speaking to you today from the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles with you, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64. And today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 64 verses 1 through 3. In September of 1949, the Spirit of God descended on a little town on the Isle of Lewis off the coast of Wales. And this area was known previously to have some revivals. There occurred a revival there from 1908, uh, from 1904 to 1905. And the Spirit came down, and the Spirit came down with full power and fell upon this tiny, obscure little hamlet in the remote part of the Isle of Lewis. God so moved in that revival that a pastor from the Faith Mission of Scotland, his name was Duncan Campbell, you may have read or heard of some of his works, was on a podium prepared to speak when the Spirit of God persuaded him to get up and leave and go to the Isle of Lewis because the Spirit of God was going to do work there. And he left, not knowing where he was going, not knowing where God was leading him, he left and by faith. And upon arrival, this pastor, Duncan Campbell, he himself testified to the power of God. You could hear some of these testimonies if you go to YouTube or if you go to some of the sermon sites, you can actually hear Duncan Campbell's eyewitness testimony. But the pastor testified that the power of God was being poured out upon this little village, a village named Barvis. Barvis. And in Barvis, he found that there were two local pastors who had decided to come together to pray for an awakening, to pray for revival in their little town. Now, the conditions that preceded the revival were not good. Churches were not full. For the most part, there was empty. There was a form of religion in that people held to the traditions, but there was no real power of God. The youth of the day were more interested in going to the bars than going to the... Uh, dance halls and going to the movies and showed little interest in the things of the Lord. The prayer meetings, although few, were lightly attended. But for the most part, the overall consensus of the town was a disinterest in the things of God. You know, history demonstrates to us that revivals do not occur when everything is going great. History clearly demonstrates that revivals occur when things are dark, when the spiritual condition is dark, and when there are few that are on their knees praying to God to move to move as he did in the days of old. 
Some of the things that Duncan Campbell observed, I've read his book, I've heard his testimonies. Um, But some of the things that were observed from Duncan Campbell was the revival was about people being saved. What God put on their mind was their eternal destiny, heaven or hell. They were consumed with the idea, am I in Christ? Another characteristic was the preaching was expository in nature. In other words, the people responded to the word of God. Recently, we heard of a revival that supposedly took place in Kentucky, right? And I say supposedly because I'm in no position to say whether it was. But if there were flags of concern, the flags of concern was there was no expository preaching. People, it it, it seemed to be more of an extended worship service. And even unbelievers were participating in the worship of God. That wouldn't seem to fit the criteria of a genuine move of God. In this little town of Barvis, there were mass conversions that were taking place. One of the other characteristics is people were not only saved in the church, but as they left the church, as they went into their towns, as they went into their fields, they preached the gospel and other people were saved. And here's one. Another amazing characteristic is People did not want to leave church. It's recorded that people stayed at the church until 3 a.m. Worshipping, singing, and praising God. Amazing stories. And lastly, one of the characteristics is the opposition to the revival did not come from the world, but it came allegedly from those in the church. People discouraged people from doing it. They spoke of excesses. The text that the Reverend Duncan Campbell preached is the text that I'm going to preach today. Now, I want to put a qualifier out there right away. I am not preaching this text with the expectation that what happened in Lewis is going to happen here. I'm not doing that. But I am convinced of this. The more I see of the church in this nation, the more the hour is becoming more desperate. The more I see of the church of this nation, the more sin has penetrated the church. What was once called the seeker-friendly church is now the sinner-friendly church. And things that were an abomination just a few years ago are being welcomed and embraced in the church. It is a dark hour in the church in this day. And we need a genuine, spontaneous, authentic move of God and awakening in his church. We need the glory of Christ to fill his church once again, and not settle for anything less. Now, I am compelled by this, and I believe this. I believe we need this in our city of Orlando. I believe we need this in our church right here at Calvary. And so I want to recall the prophet's words as Isaiah preached for revival in Israel, as Isaiah 
was called by God. You realize when God called Isaiah, he told Isaiah, I'm going to send you to a people who are not going to heed your words. That's what he told Isaiah. They're going to hear, but they're not going to listen. They're going to see, but they're not going to perceive. But I believe in my heart, and it has been my life's objective, that we need, we need, it's a necessity to have a greater desire for Christ. A greater desire for God. That's not found in attending church on once a Sunday. That's not found by just reading your Bible. One must press in to Christ. If you want to go deeper, you want to get more. And so that's my heart. I want to give you a little bit of background to the text that we're going to read today. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 63 from verse 7 all the way to Isaiah 64, 12. Isaiah prays for the national deliverance of the people of Israel. It's a national deliverance. He's praying, God awaken Israel, awaken Israel at this moment. As God's prophet, it is Isaiah's prayer of repentance, confession, and restoration. Look with me at Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 10. Listen to the words of the prophet, uh, verse 17. Listen to the words of the prophet. Why, O Lord, dost thou cause us to stray from thy ways and harden our heart from fearing thee? Return for the sake of thy servants, the tribes of thy inheritance. Listen to the cry of Isaiah. Why, O Lord, why are we straying? Why are you turning away? Why are our hearts being hardened from the fear, the reverence of you, O God? Please, he doesn't say it there, but you hear it in, in the text. Return for thy sake of thy servants. And you know, we cry the same thing today. Lord, return for the sake of thy servants that are still here. Look at verse 18. Thy holy people possess thy sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. What he's saying, look, we had the temple, but we had it for just a short while, and then the Babylonians came and, and trampled the temple and ransacked Jerusalem, were scattered, were in dispersion. The temple was God's glory. Oh, how we need the glory of God to revisit the church again. Look at verse 19. And this is, this is a little disturbing. We have become like those whom thou hast never ruled. Oh, my Lord. That's how bad things got in Israel. Like those who were not called by thy name. You know what he's saying? We're like the unbelievers. We've become like the Gentiles. If you follow anything in the church world today, you could see there is a mass movement. Denominations are falling like it's going out of style. Things that were unheard of being allowed into the church right here in this city. Right here in this city. When I look at those texts in Isaiah chapter three, uh, 63, I say how amazingly similar is this to the church today. Now listen, 
We've heard of all the past stories of moves of God, past revivals, preaching that stirred people to repentance and confession. And yet we look around, we're not seeing much of that anymore moving among us. And we sit and we wonder and we say, what is wrong? Many of us look out at a culture that we see that is continually degenerating. Wrong is called right. Right is called wrong. We have obliterated, obliterated absolutes, especially absolute truth. The word of God is not the word of God. Right is not wrong. We have torn down institutions. And this blight has infiltrated the church. Many, as I mentioned, many form of Bible-believing, Bible-preaching denominations and churches have fallen and become champions of the culture. I, I hope you realize, I really do, I hope you realize how rare it is in this day and age to have a church that preaches the Word of God as the Word of God. I'm not, listen, I'm not putting me or I'm not putting any of us on a, on, a, on, a, on a pedestal. All I'm saying is it's weird. If you ask the average person today that's under 30 years old, maybe under 35 year old, what the church looks like, basically it's going to look like any other type of play or cultural thing. But people who preach and hold to the word of God, it's becoming more and more of an anomaly. Is it any wonder that the Lord said to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, by the way, which is, I believe, reflective of the spirit of this age. Listen to the, words, the Lord's words to the church at Laodicea. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. And at the end of that discourse, where's the Lord Jesus? Standing outside the church, knocking on the door. If you open, I'll come in. But the Lord is kicked out of his own church in that last Laodicean age. Hence the necessity to pray as the prophet. Hence the necessity to have a burden for the culture. Hence the necessity to have a burden for the church. Hence the necessity to have a burden for the nation. That God's people would pray. That God's people would plead for a move of God. So let's take a look at our text as we look at this divine intervention that Isaiah prays for. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at thy presence, and that thine adversaries... I'm sorry, I just lost my place. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at thy presence, as fire kindles brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Verses 1 and 2. Isaiah's prayer is for divine intervention. Is there anyone who believes we don't need divine intervention at this moment in history? 
He is praying, Father, rend the heavens, open the heavens, that you would come down. And what he's using as an illustration in that first verse is he's referring to when God came down on Sinai, when the whole mountain quaked and shook and it instilled in the children of Israel fear. The fear of God was among us. Exodus 20, 18 captures this. It reads, And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. We've been studying James, right? James writes, he goes, You believe you do well. The demons believe and they tremble. And my dear friend says the difference between demons and Christians today is the demons tremble and Christians don't at the mention of God. Isaiah prayer, prayer pleads with God, do the same thing again. Church, throughout the ages, God has raised men and women to pray before him for the same. During the revival at Lewis, check this out. During the revival at Lewis, there were two crippled old ladies in excess of 80s. They were crippled with arthritis, couldn't go to church anymore. What did they do? Sit back and put on the TV? No, what they did is they got together to pray. And they said, we, we agree, we're going to pray. Let's pray. Let's pray for God to move in our midst. And they prayed for years. And in September of 1949, God answered their prayers. In 1871... Evangelist D.L. Moody was going across America preaching the gospel. And he was drawing big crowds. And there were two women that caught his attention in Chicago. They'd be at every meeting sitting in the front seat. And they would sit there smiling. And Moody was intrigued. He said, these women are every time they're in the front seat, they're always smiling at me. What, what is their problem? So Moody went to them. He goes, hey, can I ask you, like, what are you smiling about? And they said, we're praying that you would get the power. And he said, the power? Yeah, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And he said, but I have the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, I got 5,000 people here tonight. I had 4,000 people the other night. People are, we're turning away people. And they just smiled at him. Well, in 1871 was the Great Chicago Fire. Moody went to New York to collect money for the victims of the Great Chicago Fire. And Moody said his heart wasn't into it. He said, matter of fact, his quote is, I'm not much into begging people to give money. His heart wasn't into it. When all of a sudden, walking down Wall Street and Broad Street, Moody felt the Spirit of God come down upon him in fullness and in power. These are Moody's words exactly. Moody said, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. He goes on to say, I went to preaching again. And the sermons were not different. 
I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before this blessed experience if you should give me all the world. And I didn't have time to include it in there, but when Moody did that, when the Spirit of God fell, Moody actually cries out to God, you have to stay your hand lest I be consumed, lest I die, as the presence of God fell upon him. Listen, every day at noon, I meet with people, about 60 people from all over the world on the United Prayer Call on Sermon Audio. And we come together for this very thing, praying that God would do a work of awakening in the church, that God would come down and fall upon his remnant people and breathe life back into the church. On Wednesday night in this church at 7 o'clock, a group from this church gathers to do the same thing. We come together to pray, to seek God's face, that God would send revival and awakening upon us as individuals, send it upon our churches, send it upon the churches in America, send it upon the church in this nation. I mean, is there anyone who could say that we don't need more of the Holy Spirit, that we don't need more of the power of God? We come and we repent and we plead with God and we worship God and we pray. And you know what we don't do? We don't ask for anything for ourselves. How many, how many can proclaim to be a Christian and not even experience the presence of God? Can anyone claim that we as a church or as individuals are more potent today than what we were before or what the church was before in years gone past. We need people to plead. We need to say, as the prophet Isaiah said, when the heavens, Lord, come down, grant that thy servants may speak thy word with all boldness. Isaiah cries for the revival fire to descend from, he uh, cries out for the revival fire to descend and consume his people. I want you to note that word. He's praying that he, we would be consumed with the revival fire of God. Look at his words. As fire kindles brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. Isaiah cries out to God for the reason why. To make thy name known to thine adversaries and that the nations may tremble at thy presence. How glorious would it be if God sent an awakening to the church and the world outside says, look what is going on. And the name of God is being made great. Do you know that every single day the name of God is blasphemed in this country and all over the world? It's blasphemed many times in front of us and we're not even disturbed or even moved by that? That's not how it's supposed to be. Like fire consumes brush and everything in its path, we as believers in Christ need to desire the fire of God's presence. Listen, just a few, a few little observations. When God made a covenant with Abraham, and he cut the animals into pieces, 
God revealed himself as the flaming torch that went through the pieces and solidified the covenant with Abraham. When God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself in the fire of the burning bush. Once again, fire was used. When God, through Elijah the prophet, chose to reveal himself to backsliding Israel on Mount Carmel, what was the litmus test? That fire would come down from heaven and consume the sacrifice. And we know when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, cloven tongues of fire sat upon and rested upon the disciples. It was then, it was then that Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Israel, the disciples in those 120 gathered there at Pentecost experienced God. A.W. Tozer says this, when Moses experienced God, he, meaning God, was no longer history to them. God was the leading personality. The tragic breakdown in Christian circles is the substitution of doctrine for experience. We have become very good at explaining doctrine, which falls far short of experiencing the presence of God. What we need in the church in this nation needs is to experience God. We need the fire of God's power to fall upon the church and believers. We need God's power to walk in holiness before God. We need God's power for boldness to stand before a sinful culture and a sinful nature. We, we need God's power so that God's name would be made great and it would be made great in the church and it would be made great in the Christians who make up the church so that as we go, the glory of God would go before us. Isn't it time, as Habakkuk said, that the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters fill the sea? Isn't it time? Aren't you sick of the things you see? Does it not upset you to see the unrighteousness of this day prevailing? And I'm not talking about political nonsense. I'm talking about outright sin. May the cry of our heart and the cry should be to God to vindicate his name and that the glory of Christ would return once again to his church. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 64. When thou didst awesome things which we did not expect, thou didst come down the mountain and quaked at thy presence. When the presence of God fell at Sinai, the entire mountain shook and quaked. At Pentecost, what happened? When the Spirit of God fell down, there came the noise of a mighty rushing wind. When the early church gathered to pray in Acts chapter 4, after being threatened by the Sanhedrin to speak no more of this Jesus, Acts chapter 4 tells us they came and they gathered, they lifted up their voice in one accord. 
And Acts 4.31 says this, The place they had gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak the word of God with all boldness. Let me tell you, I have looked at that word shaken. I have studied that word shaken. I have said, is it a metaphor? Is he using an illustration? It does not appear to be a metaphor or an illustration. What it literally means is the place where they prayed was shaken. And what happened? They didn't all walk out of there and go, oh, wow, what a great church service, blah, 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 blah. No, what happened? They began to speak the word of God with all boldness. Let me be absolutely clear with something. What we're not talking about is that you have an experience. You know, all of a sudden you get alone in your closet and, and you know, you're alone with God. Yeah, but, but what I am talking about is that we need an awakening so that we as the church that God would grant us to speak thy word with all boldness. Today in the public discourse, you can't speak about Christianity. You can speak about everything else except Christianity. You can speak about any other religion except Christianity. But if you present the gospel, you know what awaits you. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be criticized. If you have public influence, you're going to be demonized. But you know what? It is now filtered down into the social fabric of our culture. So if there's somebody there who happens to be of an opposite opinion and you raise the gospel, well, Lord, watch out. And let's be honest with ourselves. Most people tend to shy away from that. You could be a good Christian. You could be obedient. You could walk in holiness, but you could also have fear. We need a move of God so that God would shake us so that he would grant that we would open our mouth with all boldness and glorify God. And if there are bullets or if there are stones or there are curses thrown at us, that we stand facing it and take it. Hey, our Lord was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And yet he did not open his mouth. If you've been a believer long enough, you've heard of all the works of God in the past. Whether it's revivals of D.L. Moody in the mid-1800s, the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, you've heard of them. I remember a time as a child, I, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed today because I have two of lifelong friends that attend our Tuesday night Bible study. They're here with us tonight, Rebecca and Carlton. If you haven't met them, meet them after the service. But we were raised together. And I remember a time, and I know she's going to say an amen to this. I, know, I remember a time when preachers used to come and preach the word of God in the church. And whether you were a saint or a sinner, I'll tell you what, you were moved internally. Whether you repented or you didn't repent, you were moved internally. What happened to that kind of preaching? Where did it go? We become so intellectual, so people-pleasing. We choose our words very carefully so as not to offend the great crime of the 20th and 1st century. You offend someone. Oh, my goodness, you're better off murdering someone than offending someone. You'll be forgiven for murder, but if you offend them, you're never going to be forgiven. We become so intellectual and people-pleasing that many no longer preach the word of God. Where are the preachers? 
filled with the Holy Spirit, exhorting God's people and a nation to get right with God. You know, something interesting. We have, we have good Bible teachers. There are many good Bible teachers, right? A teacher's job is to provide instruction, to impart knowledge, right? That's the job of the teacher. You're an educator. You want to be able to educate them. And that's good. But the gospel is not merely information. Paul says of the gospel in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation. Let that sink in for a moment. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the dunamis. It is God's force, God's enabling force for salvation. The preacher's job is not merely to have people learn information. Listen, you can learn all the information you want about the Bible. You could be an expert. You could memorize from Genesis to Revelation, have that all down. That doesn't equate to salvation. Listen, Paul writes Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.7. He talks about a group of people that are what? Always learning and learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're learning and they're learning, but they don't come to the knowledge of the truth. And by the way, if you just want a little side reference, Paul is writing about the last days of the church, the days that are going to come at the end, where men are going to be lovers of self, boastful, arrogant, revilers. This is the characteristic of the last day church that he writes. The preacher's job is to exhort. And to exhort is to urge. It is to plead. It is to contend for people's souls. While the preacher does instruct in the gospel, he goes beyond that to encourage people to repent. There's got to be a weighty burdenness upon his soul. The biblical preacher every Sunday goes into the pulpit knowing that lives are at stake and begs and compels and pleads for souls to run to Christ. Listen, I stand before you today begging, begging, pleading with you. If you're not a Christian, if your life doesn't reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit, if you may have said something, but in your heart you didn't mean it, if your life has not changed, if you are bound by the same sins that kept you bound before you made your profession, I beg you, I plead with you, I command you by the word of God, repent, cry out to Christ, come, be saved, turn from your sin, and come to Christ. And I also stand before you today, Christian, and I put myself first in that category, begging and pleading with all of us to want more of Christ, more of his presence in our life, more of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, the New Testament constantly encourages, be filled with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. 
Sad thing has happened in good conservative churches where we've taken the Holy Spirit because of all the, the excess that we see being done in the world, we've taken the Holy Spirit and we put, them, we put them on a table because we don't want to be like those people. But it doesn't negate the truth about the Holy Spirit. And we are compelled to be filled with God's Spirit. On Tuesday night, we have been going through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And just this past Tuesday night, we talked about what does the Bible say being filled with the Holy Spirit is. If you want to know, turn in your Bibles after church and go to Galatians chapter 5. And it'll tell you exactly what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But one thing I do know, we need to desire more of God. We need the church to return and that the glory of Christ would fill the church again. That the world would behold, that the world will behold the glory of God and the glory of Christ through us and through the church. Again, I say, who can stand before the Lord and say, I'm good the way I am? Who can testify that the church is perfect the way it is? Who can declare that our society and our culture are right before the Lord? We all know that none of us can make that statement. None of us can make that statement. Isaiah the prophet was compelled for Israel. Isaiah the prophet pleads with God. You know, one of the most amazing things about prophets, they walk alone. They're not popular. Can't think of one that was in the Old Testament. Jeremiah preached for how many years, warned the people to repent, to come to Christ, and yet Jeremiah didn't make one convert. Isaiah the prophet did the same thing in Israel. What was Isaiah's reward? He was sawn in two. Think of all the other prophets. Daniel, who stood for the Lord, was thrown into a lion's den. And yet he continued to prophesy for the Lord God. John the Baptist, the greatest. What was his reward? Well, he got his head cut off and put on a silver, a silver platter because Herod's wife's daughter did a striptease for him. Prophets walk alone. Most of the time, the institution doesn't want them and the world doesn't want them and they just become a nemesis and they just become a problem. Church, now is the time for us to fall on our knees and repent for our sins and repent for the sins of the church and for the sins of the nation as the prophet Daniel did in Daniel chapter 9. We are to plead with God that God would rend the heavens and come down. That God who caused the mountains to shake would shake his remnant church in this day and age. We are to call for a move of God. And I'm talking about a move of God of biblical proportions. Should we settle for anything less? Just as what happened in the days of gone past. Look over at Isaiah 64, verses 8 and 9. Again, listen to the words of the prophet. 
But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay and thou art potter. All of us are the work of thy hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are thy people. Here the prophet utters another prayer of repentance, and he calls for God's forgiveness. Israel had practiced a form of religion, but they had denied the power thereof. Their deeds were dead, and they were powerless, and that is why judgment had been brought upon them. Isaiah prays that because God is the potter, And we, his people, are the clay that the great potter can remake us again. Therein is the hope. Christian, we don't have to look at the world and and despair and go, do you see what's going on here? Do you see, oh, did you see that? Forget that stuff. God is the master potter. And we are indeed that clay. And sometimes if there's a defect in that clay, well then the clay can't go into the kiln to become made a useful vessel. What does the potter do? He reshapes, he reforms, he pounds that clay, he gets the air bubbles out so that the final product is complete and the final product is useful and has a useful Purpose. Commenting on this verse, W.E. Vine says this. Willful apostasy leads to forgetfulness of God. So it was in Israel. There were none that called upon his name, that stirred himself to take hold of God. Insensibility to sin produces insensibility to God's claims and his mercy. What is W.E. Vine saying? We can get so dull. And when we do, God withdraws his presence from us. Oh, may that never, listen, may that never be said about anybody here. That God would withdraw his presence. I'm not talking theological, can you lose your salvation? I'm not talking about that. I'm saying the presence of God withdraws because of an insensitivity to sin. We see this in Scripture. God withdrew his presence from Israel. He hid his face from them and consumed them by means of their own iniquity. When one rejects God for sin and ignores God being consumed with one's life, God withdraws from them. The word of God is clear. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So the question boils down to what will our response be? That's what it boils down to. God came to a little, a little hamlet off a little island sitting off of Wales. Listen, because a small group 
of people were pleading and praying for God to do a work of awakening among them. Faithful people cried out. So the question becomes, do we, do we desire a move of God? Now listen, I I just want to preface this because I know it's got to be mustering here. If you're a Christian, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. No doubt about that. So I want to be crystal clear. God's not talking about he takes his Holy Spirit away as he did to Saul in the Old Testament, right? That Holy Spirit inside of us is a seal that we belong to Christ. No man can have Christ and not have the Spirit, Paul says. So I'm not talking about removing the Spirit. But I am convinced as I read Scripture, that there is a profound difference between the indwelling Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, if you take a look, what happened on Pentecost? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened in Acts chapter 431? After they prayed, they were all filled, the same people who were at Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit And they began to speak God's word with all boldness. I'm not talking about a second blessing. I'm talking about being filled with the first blessing. Of coming to a place where we live our lives completely in submission to God. And to his will. So what will our response be? We're all not content with the way things are. We know that. Listen, I'm not satisfied with it. I'll put myself on display. I have been praying for over 12 years for a revival. And believe me, this is not this. I'm not patting myself on the back. But you know what? I'm going to pray for that revival till the day I see it or the day I die. Whatever comes first. What happened in Lewis? Small group of people. The big religious church ignored them. They were ignored. Small group of people believing God for a move of his spirit. That's what we need to do. Is there anyone here who could say, I don't need more of God? If you say it, you're probably not of God. Is there anybody here who spiritually is thirsty and dry, who spiritually is hungering? As the deer panteth for the water brook, so my soul pants after thee, O God. Maybe you've been through a series of afflictions. Maybe you've been through a series of trials. Maybe you've been through a series of testing. Maybe life has worn you out. But are you dry? Are you barren? Then what does Jesus say? Come out of your innermost being shall flow rivers, torrents of living water. Come to Christ. Cry out to God. Father, I want more of thy presence. I want more of thy presence, God. Awaken and revive me. This old Presbyterian pastor, they asked him the secret of revival. He took a piece of chalk. He drew a circle on the ground. And he stepped in the circle. 
He said, the secret of revival begins with me. I can't pray for the church if my life is all messed up. I can't pray for the church that it would have an awakening if I'm not myself pleading with God, Lord, do a work in me, awaken me, revive me, Father, fill me, quench this unbearable thirst in me. And as fire begets fire, as fire consumes dry brush, if we, if God is doing a work in us, we may just happen to come upon another brother or sister that's dry and barren too. And as fire begets fire, we have a spark now that's a little flame. And that person reaches out to another person. And now that flame just got bigger. And that other person makes that circle and steps it in. And now it got bigger. And now what we have is an uncontrolled wildfire. But it's a wildfire of the Holy Ghost. And you know what happens? Like what happened in Barvis. People get saved. Don't you want to see people saved? Don't you desire... To see men and women come to Christ. How many of your unsaved loved ones, of your unsaved friends, of your unsaved neighbors, you're begging and saying, Father, save them, Lord, save them. Listen, for no other reason than the glory of God. And if you're interested in doing that, you'll find me on Wednesday night on Zoom seven or eight other brothers and sisters believe in God for this awakening and this move of God. May God send revival upon us. May he revive his remnant church. May God revive this nation. Let's pray.